Today's episode is brought to you by the Consultancy Growth Network. As you'll know, I'm a big believer in learning from people who've achieved the things that you want to. It's why I run this podcast, to share the stories of consulting leaders and how they've got to where they are today. So when I started talking to Mark Janssen and the team at Consultancy Growth Network, it was clear there was an obvious fit between Climate Consulting and their mission and what they are building with their network. But you're probably asking, what is the Consultancy Growth Network? The Consultancy Growth Network is the leading community of booty consulting leaders. It brings together seasoned consulting growth experts who successfully scaled their own boutiques with rapidly growing consulting founders looking to emulate their success. Now, you might be thinking, who are these growth experts? What do they actually know about consulting? And this is one of the most exciting things that personally I find about the network. The team at the Consultancy Growth Network have searched far and wide for some of the best boutique consulting leaders to help their members on their journeys some of which I have previously interviewed for this podcast, such as Don Morehouse and Augusto Negrillo. But it's not just the insights from these people that you will benefit from. By joining, you get access to their jam-packed calendar of regular in-person and online events, their comprehensive growth hub of resources, and their active Slack community. Through all of these channels, you can learn, solve challenges, and achieve the goals you want for your firm. And now, if that wasn't enough reason to sign up, the Consultancy Growth Network is giving all listeners to this podcast a special sign-up offer. If you join for 12 months, you join for that next year, you will get your 13th month for free, giving you that extra month to continue to build on everything you're learning and continue to benefit from the network. To sign up, just visit consultancygrowthnetwork.com or contact their partnerships director, Luke, at luke at consultancygrowthnetwork.com. And when you're talking about joining, Mention Create Engage or Climbing Consulting, and you will get that special sign up offer. There was so much we could have shared, but it was this talk that I thought would capture all of the day in one and give you as much as I could in one podcast episode from the annual summit. And I'm really pleased that TCGN agreed and were happy for us to share it. This panel session that you are about to listen to focuses on a range of different strategies for how you can grow your consultancy. The panel, which is led by Mark Janssen, founder of TCGN and seasoned consulting entrepreneur, features a heavyweight range of guests, including Paul Collins, founder and chairman of Equitech and former Climb in Consulting guest. So you may recognize his name and I would highly recommend going back to listen to his episode of CIC. Next up, we have Susan Law, founder of four global businesses during her 30-year career and currently partner at The Vibrant Company. And then we have Fred Akufo, a renowned supply chain expert, founder of Olive Horse, a leading supply chain management consultancy that was recently acquired by PwC. In this session, the panel shared their journeys to success and the growth strategies that enabled them to achieve that success. It was a session packed with hugely practical and actionable advice. And here are just a few of those highlights. They talk about why you need to make your services, your proposition as straightforward and easy for customers to buy as possible. They go into productizing and why productizing can help you unlock huge growth for your consultancy. They talk about international growth and the key questions that you should ask before making that geographical leap. And they discuss the pros and cons of channel partnerships, when they have worked, 
and when they haven't, and the lessons you can learn from both sides of those stories. These are just some of the fascinating areas that get covered in this panel discussion. There's so much else from raising finance to keeping your margins to scaling through acquisitions to how to build a strong culture, all things that I know you are going to love listening to. So with this intro, a slightly longer intro than normal because so much to pack in has been done. All that is left to say is please enjoy today's panel discussion from the Consultancy Growth Network's annual summit. So we're going to start with Paul. Paul is the founder of Equitech. They specialize in M&A globally, specifically in the consulting space or, or I guess IT services as well. He's got 30 years experience founding, growing, acquiring and selling consulting and IT service firms. He provides strategic advisory and transaction support to boards and partners of firms who wish to grow equity value, whether that's organically or through acquisition, and then realize that value through inward investment. I should also say that Paul was my mentor many years ago and brokered the deal when I sold Blue Sky to Capita. So thank you to that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Then we have Sue. Sue has founded four global businesses during her 30-year career, advised numerous entrepreneurs to build theirs. And she has experience right from raising money for startups through to steering a multi-billion pound corporate. She's currently a partner in Cormus, a capability development consultancy, which was acquired in 2020. So you guys are still going through the earn-out process. Is it nearly finished? Finished. Okay. And she's recently joined Sarah Mackey, one of our growth experts. Give us a wave, Sarah, up at the back there, at the Vibrant Company. Welcome, Sue. Thank you. And then we have Fred. With over 20 years' experience, Fred is a renowned supply chain guru. Come on, come on. (laughs) And an accomplished consultancy leader. So in 2012, Fred uh, co-founded Olive Horse. Uh, It's a supply chain management consultancy. Uh, Grew to 70 people across the UK, France, India, and South Africa. Um, And then when it came to exiting, you had quite a few suitors, I think it's fair to say, and ended up with Pricewaterhouse. So... 18 months in, I think you are now, 20 months? Yeah, 18 or so. 18 or so. So please welcome our panel. We're going to get stuck in. Right, Fred, I'd like to start with you, if I may. Firstly, obviously, congratulations on your exit to to Pricewaterhouse. But I'd like to... Yeah, yeah. Good deal by all accounts, but we're not allowed to go, go into the detail. Tell us a little bit about... Olive Horse, and I guess how it was formed, and I'm particularly interested in what created, what would you say, the first step change in the business? What were some of the things that you did yeah. in those early days? And, sure. and so I'm going to ask these guys a bunch of questions, and then obviously I'm, you, you're going to have plenty of time to ask questions as well. Okay. Um, first of all, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. I started my career at, at, at KPMG, and everything was what I call just a minor step towards building Olive Horse. You know, I, I moved from there into, uh, at a time, a company called Diagonal, which took me another step closer to kind of bravery of doing more in consulting. I spent so much time with clients, I just became native, essentially, as a consultant to, to my clients, rather to the consultancy. And so the bridge from that to going contracting was literally just a small step. And so I was brave enough to go out contracting. And when I went, went out contracting, and maybe over the next sort of hour, you'll get to know me, I managed to charm clients enough for them to say, you know, I'm probably okay to say this, to say, like, are there any more of you? And I was like, what do you mean? Um, like, a black guy in consulting? Uh-huh. <laughs> right, I'm the only one here. But no, but others in, in, in a sort of similar shape, similar view to our approach to consulting. So I brought people in and I managed to broker deals with 
agents so I could make a bit more money. And then from there, it was quite a, another small step to actually getting a group of people together. I called up one of my good friends and said, look, really tired of generally being on my own. And I'm thinking about going back to either an SAP type organization or a consultancy, but I wouldn't fancy having a shot at creating a partnership. And, and he was like, absolutely up for it. So I went up for, for rugby and had about 10 pints of, of Guinness. Uh, but then we roped everybody else together that we thought were good. And, and that's essentially how, how we started. And, you know, we were individuals. And, and really the core, the first part of it was the fact that clients' reaction when we start to talk to the likes of the Unilevers, the Mondelezers, the BATs, the Diageos, were, were essentially like, oh my goodness, so Fred plus Jim plus Ben plus makes a great cohort to, to bring into our organization to, to help with the transformation. So that was an initial uh, reaction. Uh, but we were still sort of affected by this kind of band of merry men, if I say so, although I'm a strong believer in you know, women in supply chain as well. But this band of merry men that essentially were looked upon as individual contractors. And so there was a certain mindset that came about with that, which was about grouping and, and actually being seen as a, a bona fide and generally legitimate consultancy. How did you make that shift from essentially being a bunch of freelancers which we've all, you know, most, a lot of organizations yeah. started there. How do you make that shift to being that credible consulting business? What, what did you do? We started broadcasting. We, you know, it's funny because the story is I ended up calling it Project Olive Horse because I believe that if I came to a group of guys and said, we're going to call this thing Olive Horse, it's going to be a great business. Everyone's going to go, we hate the name. And you'd get eight people arguing over what to call the business. And by then, you know, you're a year down the line and it's dissipated. So I said, let's just call it Project Olive Force and let's continue to approach clients as a group of contractors who are building a consultancy. So it was a general story. But what we found was clients bought into the passion and to the story that we were building. So that was a, a, a very small step. We also spent a lot of time actually cultivating our strapline, which when we started out was Experience Matters. But we became passionately embroiled in Experience Matters. Whatever we did, we had to demonstrate our knowledge, our experience, our ability to transform and help organizations. And that really came ac across. Can I ask you, in, in those early days when essentially you're a bunch of peers, yeah, eight yeah. of you, and you're making a living, to what extent did you invest in the brand? And just give me a, a sense of that, because that can be quite difficult when people have different competing needs. They want to pay the bills, the mortgage and all that yeah. kind of stuff. How, how did you manage like, we, that? We, and is that yeah, getting to the semantics of it, there were some very simple things we did. First of all, um, everyone is operating with their own individual companies, and we, we group those companies together. And the policy I put in place was you have to make a contribution from your company into the entity that's all of force. And it was a small amount. So our initial investment was actually quite small. Well, so you've moved away from just the eight of you now. And when you start to make a step change into growing the business, you, I, I guess last time you, t you talked to me about yeah. the punching above your weight and absolutely the kind of things that you did which i think were quite out there actually you know as a small firm to be investing in what could you I mean, share with the audience yeah leaping the forward example? there are a number of key things so like uh, we invested very heavily in marketing i said to you i wasn't i wasn't really scared of spending money for a small business at the time of our turnover let's say around that time was three to five million i was happy to spend two hundred thousand at the height of it on marketing and it was not just me it was the team we came up with ideas so we were initially we sponsored Leicester Tigers and 
we moved from that to to sponsor wasps and uh, i did we manufactured a video whereby we were talking about the relationship between consulting and, and rugby and you know, had the coaches around and, and so on. So that was really great. But we had a huge stand at, at Wasps and, you know, we sponsored the coaches there. So we were punching above our weight. That, that was one of the key things. You know, we established an office and everyone thought, well, an office is going to be really expensive and you need to be virtual. But we super branded the office. It meant that, you know, whenever anyone was in the office, they really felt the passion. When clients came, they really felt the passion as well. The big lever was actually moving to a, an employment model we realized that if once you leverage the employment model, that was the real way to generate cash into the business and not relying on the individual partners to go out and, and sweat it out. It meant that we were able to really focus on the business. What about productization? To what extent did that feature as part of your growth? There were so many things we, 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 we did. <laughs> Generally, as a business, every year we engaged in the business planning process and we were very, very thorough about it. We talked about the market, what we're going to sell into the market and how we're going to behave in the market, but also how we were going to lead in the market and sort of mitigate how we would survive as a business. It was very, very straightforward. But I had in mind what we developed was what I called a service library. And that service library essentially was our view of you know, we had this phrase in the business, which was make it easy for customers to buy from us. Don't make it difficult. I'm seeing that a lot with big consultancy. You talk about so many different approaches and services and transformations, but you never actually say, look, come and buy a health check from us. Come and buy a maturity assessment. Um, here is our rapid um, <laughs> deployment tool that will enable you to establish um, a supply chain planning solution, a production control solution, right? A manufacturing solution. And it's got five steps in it. You can do the small one, the medium, the large one. And these are the prices for it. And actually, we've already got a set team. We use three people for that. We use five for that. We use 10 for this. And customers were just like, well, that's great. We've had a look at it and we want the template, please. No, we want the enhanced. So it just became a very easy buy relationship. And it was really clear. We made videos about it. We, you know, we connected with SAP and we went on stage and had numerous sessions like this with, with clients. The important thing about running the business was, fortunately for me, you know, I've done many a business degree, but I remember we received an email, myself and my CFO at the time. Now, the CFO at the time was also a consultant. And it got to two to three years into the business. I felt that it wasn't really survivable to have a non-qualified um, uh, CFO or finance director. So we actually went out into the market and employed a real one. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. Um, employed a real one. And oh my goodness, what a change in the business. He was so effective. A proper CFO, a proper finance director. Um, but just slightly before that, we, were, we got this sort of unsolicited email into myself and my finance director then um, from a company called Equitech, right? saying, come in and talk to us. We've seen your business and we think you have a really great and thriving model. And me being you know, suspicious by nature thought, forget <laughs> that. You know, these guys are scammers. They're going to try. <laughs> but Rick said to me, Look, friend, let's give it a chance. Let's see. We can't lose. And I was like, okay, let's go. And the point is, it wasn't always just me. You know, I had a great, great team. Right? And I still do. And we went in. And we kind of eyes were opened. And, you know, fast forward, I just became a disciplined practitioner. That's the only way I can put it of the equity growth model. And I still use it as a tool to, and you know, it helped me scale the business tremendously. What is interesting is pretty much like yourself, Mark, with that network as well, 
I was introduced to other organizations. So uh, I think there are some people here from SBR consulting. And, and again, I just kind of immersed myself in um, their uh, quiz system for sales. You know, question, understand, influence, solidify. And everyone knows that I preach this. But I started to use it with clients and we, we, our teams were completely connected whenever we're in a client situation as to who is leading, who's acting, who's saying what, and, and what roles to play. And it was just so effective. Uh, it was incredible. Before that, a bit like I'm doing now, we just keep talking to the client to show how amazing we were. Um, but we completely changed that. Um, but it was uncomfortable initially. But, you know, we're not talking about methods and tools and frameworks today. Well, no, I mean, but, yeah. for, for everyone's benefit, the Bruce, actually, who's in the audience over here, took a lot of people through the Equitech uh, eight-lever model quite recently, was it about a month ago or so. So for those who haven't seen it, it's on the Growth Hub and a very, very good watch, a very important aspect, fundamental, actually. Fred, thanks very much. Paul, I'd like to just pick on, because we want to pick on some of these different growth strategies that we're going through. We mentioned productization. Fred gave some examples of what he'd done. What are your views on whether these guys should be looking to productize and to what extent and what you see works? Well, the, the logic behind productization is great. I mean, uh, if, you, if you work in my business, our focus is all about looking through the organizations we work through, through the eyes of the buyer. Right? So what's a buyer or an investor really sort of paranoid about right when they're looking at acquiring some maybe one of your businesses around here and one of the main things they are paranoid about is what happens after the deal is done do any of you hang around or do you take the money and run yeah it's, it's, it's a major sort of you know thing and so how do they mitigate that right and one of the ways in which you can mitigate that on their behalf is through productizing your business Right, now, there's lots of different ways of productizing a business, right? I mean, clearly, you've all, you've all got you know, intellectual property that you are using to attract clients into you in the, in the first place. That's why they come to you generally. You're good people, I'm sure, right? Got great methods, but you've probably got some intellectual property that they're trying to grab hold of. And that, and that forms the basis of what could be a future product. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to make the business and its ongoing growth and success independent of individuals when you productize the IP that's probably sat in many of your heads today. So think about this as a finding a way of getting intellectual property out of your heads and into something that can be used by often more junior members of the organization. And secondly, from a buyer's perspective, that that's intellectual property that is on a hard disk somewhere or it's on a server or it's in methodology or slides or software that they, their own people can use. So it forms a basis for scaling the organization that you're in, but also the buyer's organization. And if you can get it to the point where they can see that they can scale their business as a buyer as fast as you've been scaling yours, then that adds additional value to the organization. And there, there, are, there are extreme versions of this, right? So these days, it's probably easier to uh, to, to make software than it used to be in days of old, right? When you were thinking about developing a piece of software off the back of your IP, you know, even five years ago, you know, you were talking years and you were talking using many millions in order to, to do that. Today, it's a lot easier to create software. And if you can take it out of people's head and turn it into a piece of software that stands alone in its own right, 
And we'll talk about that in a second, right? Because, you know, there's risks associated with this. But if you can do that, then there's huge value associated with it. We've got one client at the moment in Lithuania, actually, who started off as a, a company who worked on solar panel, the engineering behind solar panel arrays. And it, it's quite, you know, it's a big market, not surprising at the moment with everybody talking about climate change, et cetera, et cetera, and renewables. And these guys were really top notch and they created a, an engineering consultancy to design solar panel arrays. And they got to sort of two, three, four million in turnover, something like that. When one of my guys, was actually Paul Beaumont uh, in, uh, in Equitech, uh, said to them, is there something that you're doing with these arrays, something that you could capture? right, and turn it into a piece of software. Well, fast forward another four or five years, the consultancy business is probably still turning over five or six million, all right? So it's grown, right, and it's doing well, and it makes decent margins, very decent margins, because of the strength of the IP they've got. But the software business that they've developed is probably worth in excess of half a billion. Jeez. <laughs> right? Wow. So now it took some... Time and effort, not surprisingly, and a lot of risk and investment to get to that point, right? And they did a smart thing, and that was to set it up as a separate business. And, and, and this is one of the big risks associated with consultancy turning IP into particularly software, but also other means of, of, uh, of productization, that there's big risks associated with it. And often the skill set that you've got in order to serve clients with that IP through a service is not the same skill set as that it that takes to develop a software company or a annuity revenue business or a, the, all different ways of, of, of turning that knowledge into a product. And so often setting it up separately is a smart thing to do. Um, if you think back a long, long time, if you're as old as me, right? Then when IBM decided that they wanted to go from be building a mainframe that was the size of this room to building a PC that sat on your desk, they set up a separate division to do that. And I know I used to work for them. And they set up a completely separate division because they knew that the, hard, the hardware business, the mainframe business would kill the PC business overnight, right? Because it was the wrong mindset. You know, this was a high volume, low cost business, right? And what they had before was the opposite of that. So it's a different skill set to do that. There are many different ways of productizing the knowledge you've got. I would say probably less than 10% of those who try and do it are successful. There's, there's, there's a trend in the marketplace at the moment uh, that, 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 that I've heard called asset-based consulting. I don't know whether you've, you've heard this terminology. We used to talk about technology-enabled consulting, right, where people work with a bit of technology to make the consulting go better. It made it easier to sell the job in the first place and easier to deliver it, made it more repeatable, more scalable. But asset-based consulting is a trend in the marketplace. And, and I think it's, it's taking that IP again and turning it into a real asset that's got separate value. I think it's getting easier to do that. In the past, there's been, I've seen lots of failures. You know, I, I, I mean, another example, I've got a, a client at the moment where I'm a board member of, and they've taken the idea of continuous improvement that was always very difficult to get to work in companies beyond the step change that consultants is often delivered. But getting the continuous improvement day in, day out, a la Toyota of, of days gone by, was really tough to deliver. And they said, well, we think we can create an IT operating system for continuous improvement. And they developed a company called Kaizap and a piece of software. 
But to develop that has cost millions. The, the, the guy who founded that company was earning about a million quid a year as a portfolio manager for a private equity company. He was helping improve the portfolio companies in this private equity company. He left that to set up the business. He used to work, he used to work for, 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 for my old firm in WCI as well. So that's where he got the lean skills. But he, he spent probably five years building the software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we've got one of our own experiencing that at the moment. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Don Don Moore has been Methagrid, I think. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's the same story. Um, It's taken many millions... So you've got well, deep going, pockets. If you need go, deep pockets. That, that. Well, there's yeah. a contrasting message there a little yeah. bit then. So Because on yeah. the one hand, software's a lot easier to develop now than it was Correct. 10 years ago, a lot yeah. faster, a lot yeah. cheaper. Yeah. But still, quite a bit it's, of investment. It I'm is. Gonna, uh, so, uh, and would you like to add anything around productization? Because I want to come to the international. I want to shift mm-hmm. topics in a minute around and focus well, on the international. I, I would say two things. I do agree yeah. with a lot of what you said, Paul, about um, the investment needed if it's, if it's mm. a software-based thing. But I think, you know, in Cormis, we... We kind of packaged some of our offerings. So we had an offering called Cormus Radar, which was effectively our methodology for competitive wargaming. Another one called Solar, Cormus Solar, which was around our methodology and our approach to developing a capability for opinion yeah. leaders. And, and what the packaging allowed us to do was to allow more junior people in the organization to really get a grip of, a, of an offering that we could consistently deliver that added value to the clients and I think for us, getting from that kind of stage of like just incremental growth to really step change of growth is when you can get to a point when it's not just the owners and the partners that are selling effectively and growing the business. Yeah. So actually just packaging up our offerings allowed them to kind of plug into that particular piece of what we did really well and be part of that and selling that to clients. And, mm-hmm. and when we came to sell the business, it allowed us also to articulate yeah. some of our value and Sweet. to give good case studies and to show that we could sell this thing again and again and again, which does allay the fears of yeah. you know, what's going to happen after yeah. after the earnout out phase. So, so, so I feel, think it's really yeah, yeah. Great. It feels like the summary is there's quite a spectrum here, right? So you know, there's one thing packaging what you do, and mm-hmm. there's another thing developing a whole piece of software to you know create a platform or whatever it may be with requiring all that risk and investment and. It feels like this end of the spectrum is quite comfortable to sit within the consulting business and the capability, you know, with some support. But over here, you're talking about a new a new business yeah. area. And it's just and systematically it's just, um, looking at your offerings that you sell again and again and deciding that, yes, that is something we can package up. Exactly, exactly. So when we come to questions, I know like this was a topic actually in a gap group I joined the other day. I know that was uh, something that they're keen to. So if you've got any other questions, then we'll pick those up in the Q&A. But I just want to ask the audience, we're going to flip topics and look at international growth as a potential growth strategy. How many of you have already entered international uh, markets or are thinking about um, growing internationally? Can I see a show of hands? Right. Okay. So good 60, 60, 70% of the room. That's, that's a relief because we're going to talk about it. So, <laughs> so I'm going to come to you in a suit because you've, you've grown businesses in the States, but I just want to get Paul's initial headline view on international growth because i know you've got some rules of thumb that you <laughs> tend to apply yeah i although i break them quite frequently uh, yeah i think i've closed as many consulting offices as i've opened was it nine in, at the last tally i or? think it was yeah and often in my businesses past uh, and in some clients right uh we've ended up going places that for all the wrong reasons it's always, you know, I mean, opening an office in Cape Town is it's a lovely place to go to, I can tell you. 
but does it really make an awful lot of sense? I can remember in, in my old firm WCI's days, we opened an office in Budapest. It was really, really popular with the young 20-year-old male consultants for some reason. But it was an awful lot of hassle to ever get paid in that region. So you think there's lots of reasons in order to, to, uh, to grow the business, to go international. In other words, you, you're selling to clients in the UK. Why can't you sell to you know, clients in another country doing the same sort of thing? So it seems logical. Um, all as I would say that it comes with huge amounts of risks. And the questions that you should ask yourself before you move in that direction is, can you grow in your existing markets and your existing geographies to achieve your plan? before you take the move into another geography, right? And often what happens is that people are attracted, often by a client. The client will take you into a different geography. You know, they're your, your core client today, and they say, can you go and deliver this for me in France or in Germany or in the USA? And you're often not going to say no, are you, right? You'll go with them. But kind of one swallow doesn't make a summer. You know, the fact that you have done that may be exactly the right thing to do to serve that client, but it doesn't mean to say that you then have to have to open an office. In WCI days, one of our biggest clients was Microsoft, and we completely re-engineered the supply chain around Europe. And then we were asked to go and do it in, in the USA. You know, they're based in Seattle. Uh, I don't know whether any of you have been to the Seattle area, but it's eight hours time difference, right? And I ran an office in Seattle two weeks on, and then two weeks in the UK, and then two weeks in Seattle. And it nearly killed me for six months, right? And, you know, it's not... You know, Seattle wasn't the best place to start in the USA. And we did it just because Microsoft asked us to move there. And uh, it, it was very painful. So, so be very careful about making that move internationally. Make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. And make sure that you've exhausted all the potential to grow within your existing geography. There are other channels to growth that we'll be talking about today, right? Not just moving into a different geography. Um, but then if you do do it, do it in a way that de-risks it. So don't start with the office, I would argue. Don't start with people that you don't know, I would argue. You know, start with somebody who's an existing senior person in your own organization and let them take the risk of opening the office first. Ideally, go with a client that's taken you there in the first place. That helps de-risk it a little. And there's another rule of thumb, which is a size issue. And that's all to do with your existing business, because you could kill your existing business by taking senior people out of it too soon. Right. So if you do move into a new geography with senior people, make sure you've got to a size which is big enough for the existing business to continue to operate. And, and I, my rule of thumb used to be 10 million turnover. So don't even think about going out of your core geography until you've got 10 million turnover. But as I said to Mark when we were talking about this, I've broken that at least twice uh, for, for good reasons, right? I mean, in, in Equitech, we broke it very early because we mostly do a lot of cross-border deals. So, you know, the buyers in one country, the sellers in another country, and we needed feet on the street in other big geographies where we knew there were big buyers. And so we've, you know... We've got well, six, seven offices now around the world, right? And, uh, and we probably made the first move when we were about 5 million in turnover. You know, there are times when you can... And they're still open. They're all, those offices are still open. They're yeah. still all open. Open for yeah. business. Indeed. Good, yeah. good, good. Sue, tell us a bit about... Give, give us a bit of context, particularly around Synergy. Uh, you've grown businesses in the two businesses in the US or more. Um, four. Yep. four businesses in the US. Um, yeah, tell, give us a little bit of context, a bit about your story, and then let's, let's address your thoughts on on international growth and building sure. on what Paul said. Sure. So um, by, by way of a bit of background, I grew up in the uh, 
I think the pharmaceutical industry and big pharma and uh, I think stepped out of that in my early 30s to set up a medcoms company based in Philadelphia. So I've moved over to Philadelphia with job. And I think like many people here that have come from the client side, I wanted to set up a business, a consultancy that I wanted to have as a client. So I had a very clear mission about what we were about at Synergy. We were about helping you know, improve the education of physicians about new disease areas that these pharmaceutical clients of ours were invested in. And I think the you know, recruit, you know, having that very clear mission, I think, from the get go and recruiting people to that a value set that I held about the quality standards that we were delivering against and how we went about our projects, I think really helped us. And I, I would say that, you know, at the time when uh, we had a sister company in the UK, we were probably less than three million pounds of revenue. So smaller than your rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, for us, we had the original concept behind having Synergy open an office in Philadelphia was to follow some client business that we were getting from clients that had either moved onto the East Coast. And that was the original vision. And I, I think that it definitely is true to follow the client. Mm. Um, I would also say that you have to find the right person. So yeah. I think it is very hard to take somebody from an office in London, dump them in the US, for example, mm and have them get on with it. I think you need somebody that understands the US, in, in, our, in my experience, the US business, and for us, the East Coast. It's a, each state is its own, you know, functions as its own country with its own rules, its own tax rules, business rules, uh, you know, client culture. Yeah. So Seattle, super different from Philadelphia, for example. So I think finding the right person that you can have established that business overseas is really critical. And they need to have the same value set that you have because you can't monitor them. You're kind of letting them have at it. So, and I I would almost say it's not about the financial side. It's about understanding what your customer need is in that geography. And is it the same as you think it is in your primary geography? Is there still a need? Is the competitive set the same? Because it's probably quite different culturally you know philadelphia is a hugely different business culture than operating in the uk for example their attitude to vendors rather than partners is quite different and would be a very big shock for somebody coming from here so i think uh, having the right people having some clients to get you going off the ground and and thinking truly about whether what you're offering is the right thing for that marketplace i think is would be my advice there was a nuance in there, actually, slight distraction from the international piece, but I just want to highlight it because the way you described how you built your vision for the business and the proposition was so customer-led. Mm-hmm. And I think as consultants, we've been often guilty, and I see this a lot, where people have a competency and a capability that they have, and they look at what they can do, and then they go out to market to sell what they can do. Yep. And yeah, that was just really, really, I just wanted to highlight that because it was really refreshing yep. to hear, to be Thank honest. You. So, and I, th- I think you mentioned Delaware was the place, wasn't it? Is there something good about Delaware? For yeah, like- so D- Delaware is recognised as a as the kind of place to establish a business. It's very it's very easy. It's very straightforward. The the rules, if you get into legal issues, are very clear within Delaware. So, I think it's something like ninety percent of businesses in the US establish themselves in Delaware, and then you trade as a foreign entity, actually in Pennsylvania or New York or whichever state you're in. So, I mean, you could have a whole day on establishing businesses yeah, 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 in the yeah, US, I think. Absolutely. In fact, well, there is, for those of you interested, George runs a bit of a member uh, forum around international expansion. 
think there's about 15 people involved in the conversations going on there. So if that's something that you want to get involved in, then, then let, let George know. Fred, you, you I if, I, if I've got this correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, I don't think you've sold a lot of work internationally, have you? But you've got an international delivery team. So that, there must have been some yeah. hiccups involved. Any learnings that you would share from setting up an international delivery team for the... For the yeah, um, so they're all really valid points and actually uh, very similar. For all of us, our ethos was we are a UK business that um, delivers globally. That, that was the premise of the organization. But as we evolved, if I take some examples, Paul's absolutely right. So for the South Africa business, you know, that was customer-led. Vodacom, we had a very good relationship and they said, we, to use you, we need you to establish an organization. It's actually quite difficult to close and still, still closing it. But um, so we, we established a presence there and hired some, some people uh, locally as well. And it was also that window into Africa where a few on our board were, were of African descent. So we wanted to channel through there. For France, that was actually SAP led with our alliance with SAP. They, they, they felt that they needed a strong partner there. And we had, similar to our, our board level in terms of experience, people out there that we brought on to activate that business. And then in India, that was very much our offshore uh, capability to help us drive up for the blended rate in order to, 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 to not undercut the market, but to be competitive in the market. But the complexity of actually doing that in meant that we used um, a separate business, Bluestone X, as a partner uh, in order to incubate you know, our people there and, and then run it through that way. So there were very there were key differences, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there was so much sort of, you need an X amount in your bank account. You know, you've got so many forms to go through. And then there were checks around, you know, France is so difficult to actually, the pensions, you can't even fire somebody if you're not happy with them. So yeah. You're basically signing away in blood to say, we're starting this business and we're hiring people and it will never finish. And, you know, so. I have to say, it's the opposite Oof. of the US where everyone's an at-will yeah. employee and you yeah. can just let them go at a... So yeah. But essentially, to your point there, they were not necessarily sales officers, they were delivery centers. And a lot of yeah. the selling was coming from, you know, because we sold to global organizations that had, you know, numerous, you know, people catching flights out to the depths of China just before COVID and out into, you know, Unilever and Upfield type organizations, you know, all over the world. So, yeah, we moved around a lot, a lot. Quite a nice segue there into talking mm. about another growth strategy, which is around building channel partnerships. So keen to get views and thoughts on that really as a, as a route for exponential growth. Sue, Paul, which one of you likes to start? I'm happy to start. I think we've had we've had some wins and some lose, mm. <laughs> losses in that department. I think I think channel partners for us within Cormis, we had a, a partner that we had worked with to help build some uh, out the simulation side of our one of our training offerings, and, and I think we weren't very clearly in our own lanes, and we were in a situation where they were constantly trying to kind of encroach with our client base and deliver something that would replace us. So I think having some clarity around what the partner's bringing and that it, there is some distinction between uh, what you both offer, I think is really important. In contrast to that, on a good side in Cormis, we've partnered with an IT partner to give us much more capability around measuring some of our, our, our projects. And that's been fantastic. And we've actually ended up integrating them fully into the business. And that has become part of our, our offering now. So that's okay. been a really positive thing. And, and we, we both brought different things to the table and uh, saw the, the value that each could add. And now we have a, a much stronger offer because of that. Brilliant. I, th I think I would 
add to I think what you're saying there is that it's about being in your mm -hmm. own lane. The ones that I've seen fail, I've seen lots of failures and I've been part of some of those failures, but like in the early days in the consulting business, is where you partner up with somebody who's often a, a bigger version of you, right? And in the early days of growing a small business, it's a, a means of getting work, right? You, you potentially get subcontracted to or... Um, and and, th and this works well in a in a boom economy. So when everything's going this way, right, then um, it, it's a kind of synergistic, you know, partnership, right. But it's when things start to flatten out and turn the other way, and you will find that your work gets pinched, right, from the uh, the, the stronger partner uh, in in that uh, in that group, and that can be a problem. It, it, it's a, but if you if you're if the work the partner is very different from what you do and the it example is is the obvious good one you know so if you're somebody who can implement you know microsoft's products right then that's an uh, uh, you know and, and microsoft is known for using partners in order to implement what they do then that's a that's a great way of of uh, growing your business and piggybacking off the back of a big brand but it's when you know you get close in with let's say one of the big four or you get close in with somebody who's a, a a bigger version of you or is an adjacent square to you it makes it very easy for, in tough times mm -hmm. for them to take your business yeah you got to trust them i think and you've got to be really transparent about yeah. what you're bringing yeah well, a, cu a couple of things i could offer on this actually i mean i have this view and don't necessarily take this as, as something you do as your strategy but i was against you know the old style of sort of white labeling the record with a, with a white label and you don't know who it is yeah i was absolutely against it we had all sorts of uh, big consultancy coming to us and i said well if our people on the project are not known as oliforce we're not doing it mm -hmm. and everyone thought this guy is completely you know off 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 the hook really so we, we just didn't for those reasons but on the other side of it you know, we attached ourselves to to sap and yes. went through their partner system right from blue to the top yep. gold and we closed out on you know when we sold as their leading supply chain planning partner in essentially western europe effectively and that's a great partnership and a great yeah. way of building value frankly absolutely right. yeah. yeah so yeah. Right, we've got one of our members um and jess jess are you here there you are I guess my question to you, Jess, is what would be your one piece of advice for members who are looking to make the most of their channel partners? Tell us a little bit about what you do with Microsoft, isn't it? We actually partner with all of the major technology companies, so Google, Microsoft, Databricks. And when I was sort of reflecting on this question, particularly the context that's important is when we were really small, you know, how do you look at an organization like a Microsoft and have a hope yeah. to get the conversations? And so we very, very quickly established that we weren't partnering with Microsoft. We were looking at the organization and figuring out which individuals we needed to partner with in order to achieve our goals and really understanding what our value transfer was to Microsoft or yeah. to those individuals very early on. And we needed to be prepared to give far more than we expected to receive in those beginning stages. We really needed to build that credibility and that trust and make those individuals incredibly successful and they'll introduce you to their friends who, by extension, are also very successful or influential individuals within the organization. And that really led to a lot of our growth and yeah. still does. Around 25% of our revenue comes from channel partners. Yeah. 25%? Yes. Wow. Smart move. Brilliant. Can I just say, I love that strategy. And I've got a slightly sort of contrarian view to that. And I used to say to the team, 
you know, partnerships, a lot of our team thought partnerships would give you business. And I said, absolutely not. Our strategy is to get into every client that the partner, like a Microsoft, like an SAP, relies on strategically, embed ourselves and build a relationship. And effectively, what happened was everybody came running to us saying, hang on a second, you have a relationship with our strategic partner. Let's talk. So it brought people to the table. And yeah. I still use it as a, yeah. as a strategy. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Justin. Appreciate Thank appreciate you. the contribution. I'd like to move on then to talk about, and this is something we will explore. I don't know if Adrian's here. Is Adrian Vetrich here already? Yeah, he's at the back there. So Beringa's a great story around the partner-led model, but I'd like to get your your views on on the partner-led model. So this idea of, you know, you're bringing on more partners, growing the business as a as a core strategy, really, for growth. And then we'll have Adrian can have his say later, depending on what you guys say. Uh, we might disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Go on, Paul. What do you think? I, I, a long time ago, in the early days of Equitech, I used to have this presentation which talked about why you should never start a partnership. And I had a picture of a big partner boardroom table, which had, I think, 20 seats around the, the table. And it had grown over time to the point where you probably couldn't get the 21st seat into the room in the boardroom that the table was in. And I use this one slide just to make the, the point about the problem with partnerships. And, uh, and I can tell you, I've been into so many partnerships where running a sort of two-day workshop with them, sort of strategic review type thing, where after the first day, I said, I'm not coming back tomorrow unless you get rid of, le- of at least half of the partners sat around the table here, uh, because you just can't make a decision. Right. And unless you can make a decision, right, because they're all equal partners in many cases, right, you're never going to move this business forward and you're never going to get an exit for the business that you're looking for. Uh, and in many cases, in fact, most cases, right, people did take themselves out of the room as a partner. They didn't lose any shares. They didn't lose their client work, but they ceased to be sat around the table as part of that group making decisions. And, uh, and, and in every case, got them to vote uh, for a managing partner uh, overnight before we started the second day of the meeting. Um, and so it's, it's, about, it's partially about governance, the, the, the negativities to do with partnerships. All of these things you can overcome, right? And I'm sure we'll hear, we'll hear some, of, some of that later. It's also about making sure that you're building personal value. Because if what you're doing as you're growing is just adding another partner and another partner, and effectively your, your share of the business is being diluted in relationship to the number of partners, i.e. you're not getting any leverage right, from the organization structure, then actually your personal wealth in the business isn't growing as you add more and more partners. The business might be growing, the overall business value might be growing, but is your personal value growing in that business is the question you've got to ask. Uh, somehow you've got to get some equity leverage, and that has to do with an organization that looks more like this than one that looks like this. Right. So, so there are some, some negatives of partnerships. There are also some really positives, and I'm sure we're going to hear, hear about that. Um, well, they've done all right, haven't they? They've, they've done, done really, right. really well, despite my yeah. attempted <laughs> advice, right? And they've done, they've done really, really yeah. well. So, so, so take the positives out of their story when you hear it later. But there's, you know, there's been a, a lot of negatives as well from other partnerships that I've seen. So, um, so before we're going to move on to yeah. raising finance, but before we do that, either of you got any particular comments you'd like to make about the partner side of things? Or? Well, I have been involved in, in a number of partnerships, mm. and I think the 
in both Synergy and Cormus, we'd originally set up our international expansion by bringing two partners in or one partner in. Mm. And that's, I think, they go hand in hand yeah. often. But there is always a managing partner. So I do yeah. agree with you that you have to have some sort of structure and hierarchy and, and clarity around who does what within the partnership. And I will say that when you come to sell the business, if that's your your end goal, mm. your buyer will require you to have a hierarchy. And often you'll end up with a managing partner that the other partners then report into through the earnout phase. That's happened to me in, in yeah. both of the situations where we've sold our businesses into a large network. All right. Brilliant. Okay. Well, Let's jump into raising finance. I've had a number of conversations with members where they're saying, oh, you know, I've been approached or there's a high net worth individual or there's a potential to, you know, get some cash and help me expand. And sometimes it's to get out of a hole, frankly, and sometimes it's, you know, opportunistic and, and about future growth. As a member of the investor group, which I think is a bit unfortunately named, really, it's called <laughs> the Robin Hood Investment Group. You don't think you're going to get your money back from that one, do you, really? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, as, as a member of the Robin Hood Investor Group, what would you say to people that are thinking about raising funds, raising finance? Um, I, I think I'd be, uh, I'd, I'd be very clear about why you're doing it, because I think money does come with strings. And uh, we, at Robin Hood Ventures, we are very thoughtful. I think the, the membership there, have most of them had had their own businesses, had, had sold their businesses or grown their businesses or retired out of, out of uh, corporate roles. And... And I think we, when we looked at people that came to us wanting investment, I mean, fundamentally, people still buy people. So they, I think we wanted to see the passion, the mission, you know, what their business was about, how they were going to build value of the business, resilience. So, you know, what, you know, planning to fail, because often the, the businesses that we'd invested in, you know, they didn't always go to plan and they need to pivot what the product offering was or, or how they approached the marketplace. So I think looking for resilience. And I would say to really think about why you need the money and what you need the money for. Because I think often I've sat in many investment presentations where you see this like typical hockey stick. So this is not so good. Next year we were investing and then it's going to all come great in the end. And you have this massive uh, exponential sales growth, which quite honestly <laughs> is not very believable. Yeah. So I think when you're you're looking to investors it's to be really clear about what you want the money for and to be able to communicate how you understand the customer base so that why you're you're getting this extra money is going to give you a, um, a change in your growth strategy or an opportunity to to step change for your business and i think to raise the the right amount first time so to really think through what happens if it doesn't go to plan if the if my market sector has a downturn and it takes me a lot longer to secure the clients than I had planned because you don't want to run out of cash and you also don't want to come back to those same investors and say, well, you know, I need a bit of a bridging, bridging finance now before I can go to my next big raise. So I think just really thinking it through and, and making sure you're very clear about why you want to raise the money in the first place. Okay. Uh, extending it out to that, and, and this may be a quite a quick subject, but acquisition is also another obvious potential growth strategy. But obviously, a lot of our uh, members are, you know, on the smaller side. When does acquisition become relevant? Is it, you know, five million, ten million? What? When have you seen that work? Have you got any? Or have you any thoughts on? Mm. Is is this a, is it a strategy these guys should be thinking about? Or? Well, uh, first of all, on on the raising finance yeah. bit, right? I would be inclined to say that. Most consultancies shouldn't in the very early stages of what they do. I've seen lots of money misspent, mm. 
one particular example I remember was a company we worked at selling eventually in, in Helsinki in, in Finland. And um, they'd had money from private equity when they were about four or five million in turnover. And they'd frankly just misspent it building offices around the world. I think they had 15 offices when I first met them and they were about 10 million turnover. And there was only one office that made money, right? And so one of the first things we did was shut down all the offices, right? And, uh, and got them to the point where they could actually get a return on, on, on their money. Uh, but, but so, you know, consulting should be cash generative, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you're not going out there building the big software package, right, let's put, let's put that to one side. If you're doing consulting, right, to clients, you should be making at least 20% plus margins, right? You should be net, generating net margins, net margins yeah. right, EBITDA at level. You should be generating cash. You should be able to grow what you need to do, right, out of cash flow. You shouldn't need to have an injection money. You bring money in, not only will it come with strings, it'll come with some share dilution, right, probably, right? So generally, I wouldn't advise it in the early stages of growth. If you then want a little later, so to come to back to your question on acquisition, if you then later want to acquire, I would only do that, right, if I felt that there was an opportunity to get some movement in the shareholding structure. So let's say you've been 10 years at this and you wanted maybe, there's maybe you or, or some of your colleagues wanted to exit and you wanted to move the shareholding around and sometimes bringing some money in from third-party financiers like private equity is a way to, you know, move the, the shareholding around, right? And it may well be that the company you're acquiring, one of the reasons you're acquiring them is because they've got a, you know, a hotshot, you know, CEO and, and, you, and you might want to bring them in to, to take over the business, right? So there could be good reasons for that. But as a general rule of thumb, growing the business without acquisition is better off mm -hmm. from your personal wealth generation point of view and bringing finance in in order to get an exit yourself right is a good way right of moving shareholding around in the business from maybe you as a senior shareholder to more junior shareholders or people who don't have shares in the business today so it's um it's easy to misspend money and, and it's really difficult to pay it back. Especially when the land's um, not yours, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's easy to do it. Mark, well, maybe just a, a valid point. Yeah. We, we started off as an LLP, and just due to, obviously, some of the government um, policies, we, we flipped into a, a limited company and therefore limited our liability. But invoice factoring, wow, we shored up with that. It's costly, but it, it meant that even in times of difficulty, we could sustain... I think the longest, we had 120 days. And our best was sort of pay on invoice. Yeah. But with invoice factoring, it just smoothed the profile of the cash flow of the business. And we were just so comfortable with it. It was yeah. great. Okay, guys. So I've got just one or two more questions for the panel, but I want to get the guys on the roving mic. So we're going to take some questions from the audience. So we've, uh, Chris has already got his hand up. I haven't even finished. Right. Hang on. So oh, well, let's go to the audience now. I'll come back to my questions. So... Yeah, that session really resonated with us. I, I, I really like Fred's approach of we're UK-based and trading internationally, which is what we've gone back to after setting up loads of offices around the world. But the big thing, it's a practical thing, but it's vital. We got approached by a couple of very big brands in America, and we turned the work down because our insurance company scared the hell out of us. And they basically said, you can trade, but it is one word in the terms and conditions that mean that you walk away. And I just want to get, how do you get around this? Because the bigger the brand, the more likely they are to put that horrible word, jurisdiction. 
And our insurance company said, we will not insure you if you sign any contract where the jurisdiction is anywhere in North America. And all the big brands forced us to do that. And we just had to walk away. How the hell do you get around this? That's a great question. I have no idea, but I'm hoping. Well, I, I think that's maybe... partly why a lot of people end up setting up an office in the US, because then they're working in that state's jurisdiction and that business. And we set up our US businesses actually as sister companies deliberately from the UK business. They were separate trading entities and they traded under the US Pennsylvania, for us, it's Pennsylvania jurisdiction. And we had clients in New Jersey, New York, Boston, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. So we only ever, you know, we were, we were pretty successful and grew pretty strongly without even straying off the East Coast because it is a huge country and you don't want to spend six hours on a flight to Seattle and try and service a California office when you're not local to it and you're three hours time difference. It's, it's, you do have to think about it. So, you know, I think it's this concept of, of global, which I, I can't claim credit for because I think it's rife in the pharma world. But, you know, you are a global company, but you are operating locally. And that's the only way to have people on the ground that understand, you know, the legal risks and have lawyers that understand the jurisdiction. I think that's 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 the only that's the way that we got around it in both of the businesses that we had, you know, pan transatlantic um, operations. So they weren't subsidiaries, they were separate They were separate sister companies. So it could sink and wouldn't kill the mothership. Correct, correct. And legally, uh, the partnership, we, so we had two, one of the partners was a partner both in the UK and the US organisation, but the others were separate. When we came to sell the business, we did actually bring them together. The one synergy we sold actually primarily as a US business to an Omnicom group, which is a New York-based um, holding company, with Cormis, actually, we sold it to Huntsworth Health, which was a UK base. So we, when we knew and we had identified the, the suitor for us, we actually restructured the business to sell one entity because that was the way that, that it suited them. And actually, we ended up selling shares in the US piece and the UK piece separately. But as a partnership, we came together and kind of pooled our, restructured our partnership to do that. So I, I think you ha it, is, it isn't simple. Um, and I do think having them set up as sister organisations meant that they were they were separate from a liability perspective. Cool. Thank you. There you go. That's great. My question is one something that we haven't really touched on much, but you kind of hinted at, which is around culture. How important as you grew the company was it to maintain a real strength of culture in the organisation? Was it as important as that I believe it is, or am I kind of wasting my time in it? <laughs> That's really the question. Or, or was it fundamental? <laughs> to how you grew your organization in, in a trusted way. And, and the second part to that is, how might that have shifted now you're part of PwC? Oh, gosh, I knew oh. that. <laughs> All right, I'm out. Okay, well, I, consider, <laughs> I consider them a worthy rival rather than the enemy. No, but it, it's, it's a great question. I appreciate that. Look, I mean, I think just working backwards, you know, when in, in, through, through the sales process, where we actually came up with this whole the matrix structure of analyzing and we had the strategic fit of olive horse to any of our nine potential interested parties but we also had a cultural fit and we had a number of criteria because we we preserved a culture we were fortunate that we, we just managed to develop this culture of everyone we had a lot of people coming from different consultancies to us and we selected really carefully so we had this cult view of having real talent and some of our staff used to say to me, oh, my goodness, I'm working for Olive Force. It's amazing. Your name out there means that now I'm in it. I'm, I'm considered to be an excellent consultant. I'm so happy to be here. 
within it because because of partly because of that, but also mushrooming from right from the outset was the fact that we had this huge learning culture. You know, every Friday we'd have sessions with a team all you know, in the smallest offices when we started sitting on floors and tables and somebody would be preaching about materials requirements planning. Exciting, right? Engineering change management, demand forecasting. People just were willing to learn from uh, some of our directors who had 15, 20 years experience. So it just sort of well went. And, and then there was this sort of competition around writing blogs, technical blogs, new views, coming up with great ideas for supply chain for the future. And it just sort of, it just kept on mushrooming and it just persisted. And so in, in sort of closing out for the sale, it was very much, where can we continue to have this culture um, that really fits with, with, with a big four organization? Within PwC, I have champions in there that continue to do lunch and learns. And what we're finding is that, again, it's sort of you know, getting around the business and we're getting more and more people turning up to the lunch and learns and you know, learning what uh, an error um, solution is, what digit, um, decision intelligence is, where AI can be used in supply chains. So, yeah, it's per- per- permeating. And I think you've got, to have, you've got to have deep passion for your business. A lot of us are in career businesses, right? We're, we've, we've done something and we've built a business around it. And, and so naturally, if you have the passion, it just comes out. Uh, and people need to respect that and go, wow, okay, let's embrace this. Yeah. I, I would second that. I think culture is probably the most important thing, I think, as your business grows. Because when you start off in a consulting business, you have a, you have a passion and you have a mission. You're, you're, you're on it to build something that you really want to be part of. That's your business. And, and people join you because they see that and they want to be part of that. And I, I think I was always very cognizant why people joined Synergy because they didn't have you know, the, the bragging rights of PwC or GSK in our case or Novartis or Sanofi. They were joining a you know, relatively small company that, that serviced these big players. And they joined us because they wanted to make a difference in the consulting business. They wanted to have an impact in what they did. And they also wanted to have an impact on the client's business and how they were able to educate their physician customers. And I think never losing sight of why people joined us. And so every day, you know, I thought my job as a leader was to reinforce the impact that they made within the business and the impact that our business made for our clients. And at Synergy, I think we used to joke that if you cut people open, they'd bleed orange, which was our brand logo. And, uh, you know, having I sold that business in 2010, we still have an alumni group of synergites, as they call themselves, and they meet up. And whenever I'm in, I'll be in Philadelphia next week, actually, and we'll meet for, for drinks. And they still, you know, will talk about, oh, the synergy days, it's never been like that. I, you know, I think that is, that is culture. That's what people are expressing. That's the culture. And, and I think that, that as we grow, and they have less time with the founder because there's more people in the business. They have less time with, you know, with the partners if you're a partnership. That that permeation of the culture is why people kind of plugged in and still still sort of value the the intent of the company, and then will carry on growing it for themselves. And we were lucky when we sold into Omnicom, we maintained our own little unit. Synergy still going today. Ten years after we, more than ten years, thirteen years after we sold the business. 10 years after we, the partners left the business, still going today. And, and with Cormus, we also, we're just finishing that earn out now. That brand actually will end up 
disappearing, I think, as they restructure it internally. But we, you know, in the last three years, we've kept that culture really tight and we've done all the lunch and learns and the sharing and the, you know, the end of project debriefs and the, the social stuff. And I think it is really important to keep going, even when times are tough. Brilliant. I just wanted to pick up on this point about culture because it's a challenge, isn't it, to to try to embody your culture and your business, which is part of your your IP, if you like, in a software. So I'm just curious as to how you see those two things relating. How do you how do you capture your the essence of your company in a repeatable pattern? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I've never heard that one before. So well done. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I suspect in many cases you're not trying to encapsulate like, the culture of the business in the product, right? You, you're trying to capture other aspects of the IP. But having said that, the one I'm most involved in, I mentioned it earlier, this uh, company called Kaizap, right? They absolutely have built the culture into the of the business that they were in. So I see my old company built into this software because of the way in which the software is deployed in the client, mm-hmm. which is which is very teamy, very, you know, sort of inclusive, very, you know, ex- all those good things that you'd hope, words that are, you'd hope would be associated with the culture. So I think you can do it, but I think most people don't even try, is my guess. Cool. I sadly agree. <laughs> Just to add something. Interesting point to, though, Adrian. Very interesting point. To that. Uh, it's it, not in software, but it's in productization. We had a product we referred to as Oliforce Care, and it still catches on. We've obviously dropped the Oliforce <laughs> part of it. But I think it embodied our culture. It embodied our culture of working with operators and planners and kind of exuding what it meant to us and how to approach the job. And it just kept on going because it was very much about, you know, knowing what to do and and also just the Oliforce uh, ethos behind it. So, Question for you, Paul. When you talked about getting base level investment, you talked about there must be a net margin of 20%. I follow that religiously through the bench press. And I believe it's been 19% average, 18% average, 17% average over the last few years. So I guess there's only a few companies in this room that are achieving 20 from an average perspective. So is that how you're picking out the ones that would or investors are picking out? They're literally just picking the cream of the crop there. Or is 20% absolutely achievable and we should all be doing more to achieve that EBITDA of 20%? I'd say 20% should be the minimum you should uh hope to achieve the problem with less than 20 percent is that you know if we if we all lived in a market that did this to us it would be great wouldn't it but managing supply and demand when this is doing this right is the secret to getting a decent margin out at the end of the day and so you need flexibility in, in both the demand side and the supply side in order to achieve that that 20 percent. so as an example how many of you use subcontractors Right, one man band type subcontractors. Yeah, quite a lot of you. Yeah. We used to have a policy in the in the old consulting firm, not in Equitech, but in the old consulting firm, we had a policy of twenty percent, right, that we would subcontract twenty percent of our revenues. And that enabled us to be able to manage some of the cost side of the equation when the revenue side was moving all over the place. So so twenty percent is certainly as Equitech now, what we look for as a as a minimum right achievement you can sell a business at less than that but bear in mind that you know you, you're all aware i'm sure through you know being part of this network that you know a multiple of your ebitda 
in some form or other is the start point on a buyer's valuation. So the higher that EBITDA is, right, the, you know, the, the better off you're going to be. And certainly the, the, pre, the companies that, that will look premium from a buyer point of view, that's one of the, bit, the most important KPIs. So you would expect to see it above 20%. Okay, right. We're going to just, so let's just have one final, and let's try and make it short and sharp because we're a little bit over time. One key piece of advice that you would leave these guys with when it comes to them thinking about their growth. Pretty broad. Don't run out of cash. (laughs) (laughs) Invoice pack. Do you remember the old, what is it? Revenue is vanity, vanity profit vanity. is sanity, and cash is king. Yeah. Um, businesses yeah. die because they run out of cash. That's it, <laughs> right? And uh, for, no, for no other reason, mostly. And in the current environment, it would be very easy to run out of cash. You know, we've seen this in, in my business. You, know, you think consultancy has a tough time. You try M&A, right? You know, do all your work for a year and then you know, get paid a year later. You know? I mean, it's pretty tough going, I can tell you. Right, you get this. Thanks for that, Paul. I think I'd say something about leadership, actually, because I think it's very easy when you're in the, like you go into business, you're all excited about the the consultancy that you're creating, and then you get into this cycle of going round and round the merry-go-round, trying to add more growth each year, and it's always a different percentage each year, but it's the same going round and round. And I think for your teams and your people, you know what it's like on America around eventually or fairly quickly, actually, you want to get off. And I think that I would challenge us to think about the type of leader we were when we set up that business because people don't want to go on a merry-go-round they want to go on a journey and they want to go on a journey with you and that's why they joined you to and I think part of growing your consultancy is is getting to a point where your people are really plugged into that original vision you had and the mission that you set out and what you look to achieve and bring to your clients and so I think that in these times is even more important because we we get to a point where we're just so focused on I've got to add this much money this year I've got to get this margin or this percentage that we've lost you know we're, we're coming from a place of fear instead of from a place of growth and I think just to challenge us to go back to be that leader that we were when we started out our business Mm. that's great show Fred, final comment for the day. Final comment. I was, I was no thinking of um, one of these sort of Wall Street movies where he says, buy my book, but I don't have a book. As- <laughs> 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 um, um, no, I'm actually going to pinch something from Equitech just because, you know, I, I really kind of, it resonates and I practiced it. And it's a day smiling away there, but it's run your business as if, you know, you're going to sell it, even if you don't plan to sell it, because it brings in all those things. It brings in year-on-year growth, 30% growth each year. It, it means, you know, the type of leadership you, you have uh, within the organization. It means, very importantly, which was drummed into me, work on the business, not mm-hmm. in the business, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. those, the, you know, it's 50,000 feet, but it's super important. Great. Yeah. Great way to finish. Thanks very much to our panel. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you 
by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality. Helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.